Those pictures in mind, uh, they, were, they were meant to be fun, but at the same time, they're to illustrate a point of the difference between sort of the pretend versus the real. The what we think of versus the reality of what can be and what is. This morning, some of you have been waiting so long for me to get to this passage on Melchizedek. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, just this life springs up within you that says, oh yes, I can't wait to... Well, we're there. We're on chapter 7 where we're going to talk about this mysterious figure that appears in the book of Hebrews, and it seems to be very important, uh, this character by the name of Melchizedek. Remember that in this book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is speaking to a primarily what kind of audience? What kind of audience is he speaking to? There's going to be quiz at the end of this day. A Jewish or Hebrew audience, hence the name Hebrews. Uh, to a Jewish audience who have become followers of Jesus Christ, but over the years, they're struggling in their faith. They're struggling because there's persecution that's coming. They don't know all the rules. Things have changed. They were born into one system. Now they're in another, and they don't know what to do. So some of them are actually thinking about going back to Judaism, saying, this is just too hard. This Christian life, this Christian walk is just too hard. And the author of Hebrews makes it very clear that the fullest and most complete and the final revelation of God to mankind is found in Jesus Christ. That there is no greater revelation in Jesus. His whole point being that once you come to know Jesus, anything else is less than Jesus. Anything. Any religious system, any way of thought, anything else. If Jesus is the fullest and most complete, anything else is less than. And the point that he's making is this. Consider Jesus greater than. Hence the kind of outline on the front of your bulletin. Jesus is greater than anything. Put anything in the blank that you want to on the other side. Jesus is greater than that. He's greater than your problems, he's greater than your circumstances, he's greater than your mind, he's greater than your sickness, he's greater than your health, he is greater than anything. As a pastor, I wear a number of uh, various hats, so to speak, in helping, I believe, advance the kingdom of God in the sphere of influence that God has given me to shepherd or pastor I, I, I love this people. I love this place. I believe very highly in what God is doing in our midst. I believe we're on the right path. At the same time, I know that in some sense, I'm going to be held accountable for what I do, how I deliver the word of God, how I uh, pastor this people and this place. The Bible speaks of pastors as shepherds who help sheep not get lost and stay away from danger and, in fact, really stay on the path, how to help people stay on the path that God has for them. I'm increasingly convinced that there are ditches all around us, things that will will trip us up and, and will fall in the ditch, will be off the road, and will be, if not stuck there for the rest of our lives, stuck there for long enough that we shouldn't be doing what we're supposed to be doing. 
And part of my role, I believe, as pastor is trying to help us together, me and you together, battle through to stay on the path so that we don't fall into these various ditches. As a result, the way I try to preach, I know this is a big lead-in, but I, I believe it's very important. The way I preach is trying to hold up the true so that when the counterfeit ties to come in on us, we can recognize it as counterfeit. So I believe my role is generally to hold up truth and say, this is Jesus, this is God, this is his plan, this is his purpose. Stay on the path, keep your eyes fixed upon him so that we don't fall in the ditches. But every so often, the Bible starts talking about these ditches that we could fall into. And I believe there are a couple of them mentioned in this passage today. So I I really don't like to preach against something, so I hope you don't see this as a preaching against anything, but more preaching for what I believe God has for us, but a recognition that there are problems that have been around for thousands of years that that have prettier faces, uh, better makeup, um, you know, they're, they're, they're in the limelight, they may be on television, they may have lipstick and fake hair, but they are still ditches that we will fall into as followers of Jesus Christ if we don't keep our eyes firmly fixed on the path, the road that God has for us. See, the enemy, if he can't cause us to um, betray our faith and give it all away in sin, what he'll do is he'll try to bring something that looks sort of true into our lives, something that has just a kernel of truth, blow it out of proportion, I believe, and distract us from what we're supposed to be doing. It's like we get to this scenic overview, if you don't want to think of it as a ditch. Think of it as you're on the Blue Ridge Parkway, you get to this scenic overview. It's just so beautiful, you just, you never leave. So you're parked there, you're camped there, you just live there. When in fact, God says, hey, enjoy the view for a moment, but let's move on. Let's keep moving forward to advance the kingdom of God. Today, we're going to kind of walk through this passage, chapter 7. I'm, going to, I'm actually going to read the whole thing, comment on a couple of places, give you an idea how to read it and interpret it, I hope. And then I'd like to draw some truths from the passage out. So, in Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 1, really chapter 6, the last verse, you have this verse, this reference that uh, Jesus Christ is um, a priest forever out of the order, in the order of Melchizedek. This guy Melchizedek, he's only mentioned a couple of times in the entire Bible. In Genesis chapter 14, we see him referenced, Genesis 14 verses 18 through 20, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, that's Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Abraham has just been in a battle. These four kings allied themselves together. They attack where Lot, that's Abraham's relative, lives. He's carried Lot away and his relatives and a bunch of stuff. Abraham gets an army together. He pursues after these kings. He defeats them. 
He takes the spoils of war, and when he's on his way back, this guy, Melchizedek, just shows up. This is, we never hear of him before. We never hear of him after. He just shows up. He speaks a blessing over Abraham, and Abraham gives him a tithe or a tenth of everything that he's taken in battle. The next time we hear of Melchizedek is actually a psalm of David. It's Psalm 110, which Rich read at the beginning of the service this morning. The Jews recognized this psalm as a messianic psalm. They recognized this psalm of David as a psalm that speaks of the coming of Jesus the Messiah because it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. It goes on and says some other things. Then in verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is the first time that phrase is used, and it is this phrase that the author of Hebrews, God reveals something to him. He's used it already three times in the book of Hebrews leading up to chapter 7. It's got to be important somewhere, right? I mean, he said it three times already. Now he's going to give an entire chapter talking about this dude, Melchizedek. Here's the problem for us, and it's it is a problem in Hebrews, and it's one of the reasons I'm going to try to move as quickly as I can without getting bogged down. The author of Hebrews is talking to the Jewish people who, who understand all the references he's about to make. They have the background. They, they understand the Old Testament. They understand the priestly Levitical system and the tithe and everything that's going on, all the references. All he's got to do is mention them. Um, um, like, if I talked about, uh, wow, how loud it was with those cowbells yesterday, most of you in Alabama would recognize I'm talking about that Mississippi State game uh, that the good team lost uh, in, uh, that Auburn lost. But you understand the reference because you live in a, per, in a context of time and in a place that you understand those references. They understand them. We don't understand them as well unless we're We've studied the Old Testament very well, so I'm going to try and hit them, give us a reference of understanding, and then move, move forward. So here we go. Buckle up. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First... His name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. So he's giving them, he's reminding them. Abraham's coming back from the battle. This dude, Melchizedek, he comes out. His name means king of what? Righteousness. And he comes from Salem, which means peace. So he's the king of peace. Salem, by the way, is the precursor to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So he's the king of Jerusalem, but it's not called Jerusalem yet. It's called Salem. But his name means king of peace, king of righteousness, king of peace. He blesses Abraham. Abraham also gives him uh, a tithe. Um, This whole tithe thing, by the way, what did I say at the offering time about a tithe and a blessing? I'm sorry, somebody said it. Lesser gives to the greater right? And what? Abraham just felt like, oh, 10%, I got an extra, I'm going to give it to him? 
Now again, he's going to make it clear later in the chapter that this represented all of Abraham. So Abraham, Abram, is giving to Melchizedek. The lesser is giving to the greater. And he's giving this portion that represents himself. So who is the, who's the premier character in this account? Who's, who's higher and who's lesser? Melchizedek is greater. Abraham is lesser. Now listen, people. You and I may be saying, all right, okay, so... Um, to the Jewish people, this is huge because Abraham is the dude. I mean, Abraham is the father of Judaism. He's the father of the nation. So for him to be considered lesser than Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness, king of peace. Do you not see the um, pictures of Jesus Christ all in this? Verse 3. And by the way, verse 3 has given people fits for years. Uh, Verse 3 says this, Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of Man, he remains a priest forever. Makes it sound like what? Like he's God, like he's eternal. As a result, some people have said Melchizedek must have been Jesus before he came to earth the first time. Um, The term that's used is he is the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, I, I don't believe that this is what he's saying. There have been other, the, the four primary views of Melchizedek are this. He's the pre-incarnate Christ. He's a pagan king. I don't believe he's a pagan king because he wouldn't have worshipped God the most high. Abraham would not have submitted to him. Third, some people have said he's one of the sons of Noah who's still alive at this period. And then fourth, to say he is a God-worshipping king and priest who Abraham recognized as a like brother, but he was also a recognized king and priest in this area that Abraham submitted himself to. I I would hold with number four. Uh, I would say this is who he is. And the reason it says this is because everybody in Genesis, he's using a literary technique here. Everybody in Genesis, if you remember, has some sort of genealogy. I mean, Genesis gets a little bogged down, honestly, if you try to read it with all these genealogies, thus begat thus, and thus begat thus. But this guy, he just appears, he's here, he's gone, we never hear of him, beginning, no ending, we don't know. But I do believe he is a picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to bring when he comes. Reading on, again, People argue over that verse a ton. I'm giving you my view of what I think is the best interpretation, and I'll continue to share why in in the moments ahead. Verses 4 through 10. Just think how great he was. Even, this is a reference to some of the truths I've already told you, but you can kind of see it now. He's unwrapping it for us as well. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, the law requires the descendants of Levi who became priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And here we go with kind of unwrapping some more. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. 
In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Everybody with me? (laughs) Here's what he's saying. I'm going to just unwrap this real quick. You've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They are the patriarchs. Jacob had a bunch of sons, 12 plus. But the 12 become the tribes of Israel. All the rest of the tribes uh, trace their lineage from the 12 sons of Abraham, from Jacob. Levi was one of the sons of Jacob, if you remember. And his tribe becomes the tribe from which all the priests come. The priestly system was the backbone of Judaism. The law, we're going to see it in a minute, and the priestly system, they were the backbone of Judaism. So the Levites were paid a tenth. All the people gave a tenth of their earnings to the Levites who were the priests. The author of Hebrews is saying this. Listen, Abraham, who is the father of us, gave a tenth to this guy Melchizedek while Levi was still in his father's body because he hadn't been born. So in fact, he is through some logical reasoning saying Levi paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Are you with me? Again, he is saying what his point is this. Melchizedek, this priesthood that God gave him and anointed is greater than the Levitical system. The lesser pays tithes to the the greater. Is that perfectly clear? Hopefully, TV's over here saying yes, because if if I say no, he's going to talk about it some more. (laughs) Verses 11 and following says this. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the law was given to the people. The whole Levitical priesthood is based on the legal and law system. Why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. Remember, Aaron is the first high priest. He's from the tribe of Levi. The author here is trying to make it clear. If righteousness could have been gained through the law, the Levitical system, what good would it have been? Why would Jesus have needed to come? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. Nobody from Melchizedek's tribe has ever served in the temple system. Only the Levites and descendants of Levites did. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. So you got Levi, right? One of the sons of Jacob. Judah, another son of Jacob. Only the Levites could be priests. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Moses said nothing about priests being from Judah. And when we have said, excuse me, and what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of regulations as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of a what? Praise God, of an indestructible life. Jesus' priesthood is based not on rules or regulations or birth, 
but on an indestructible life. He's winding it up here. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Again, the quote from Psalm 110 that he's already referenced three times. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. You ought to underline that three times, four times. I'm going to hit it again in just a minute. For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Verses 20 and following. Let me bring it to a close. And it was not without an oath. Don't get too excited. I don't mean close like I'm finished, like close. I'm going to be done with reading this chapter. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Again, he's quoting from Psalm 110. He's saying the Levitical priesthood was just one out of birth, one out of genetics. Jesus is a priest as a result of the oath that God the Father said, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, I'll make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Going on, he went on and said, I've sworn it. I'm not going to change my mind. You are a priest forever. Now, there have been many of these priests. He's talking about the ones who are priests by birth. Since death prevented them from continuing in office. But Jesus lives forever. He is a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is... This is another verse you ought to just underline, highlight, memorize, dwell on. Therefore... He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is a different priest. The priests of the Levites had to keep getting replaced. The high priest. It's estimated there were probably 81 different high priests or so between Aaron and the fall of Jerusalem around 70 AD. Um, Those priests, they kept dying. So they had to be replaced. Jesus, however, is permanent. Verses 26 and following. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. I think you see the wrap-up. He's saying the high priest, the Levite's high priest, there's a couple of bad weaknesses about being a Levitical high priest. One, they keep dying, and they keep having to be replaced. Number two, when they offer sacrifices for sins, they've got to offer sacrifices for their own sins. Jesus, on the other hand, is permanent. He lives forever. And the sacrifice that he made was not for his sin, but for ours. His is a better priesthood. It's not like the Levitical priesthood. It's outside the order of the Levites. It's more like Melchizedek. You may be saying, hallelujah. What does this mean for me? 
Let me see if I can draw three truths for us this morning. One is this. We need to come out of the shadows. We need to come out of the shadows. This is kind of a theme you're going to see for the next actually four or five chapters in the book of Hebrews. Already, already, the author of Hebrews has said, Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is the fullest revelation. Therefore, we have confidence in the promises of God. We have confidence to draw near to God. We have confidence that God is who he says he is. We have confidence in God. Now he's going to come back to the idea, especially to those who are Jewish, to say that, that everything that was in the Old Testament was a shadow of who Jesus Christ is. As a matter of fact, he says it directly in chapter 10, verse 1. He says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. He's making two points here. First is that everything in the Old Testament is a shadow that's cast by the figure of Jesus Christ. He is the reality. I've I've talked about this before, but many of you are new to fullness. But in in Plato's The Cave, uh, out of the Republic, he has this picture where people, uh, let's say you are the wall of a cave, and there are people who are chained together with their heads that cannot turn, looking at the wall of a cave. Where the communion table is would be like a fire that's burning. Excuse me, would be a walkway back here. And then behind the walkway would be a fire that's burning, a light of some source. So I'm chained looking at the wall. There is a walkway and then there's a fire. And all I can see is the figures that come along, their shadow that is on the walkway. Are you with me? The fire is casting a shadow, and all I can see is the shadow that's on the wall. I'm chained here for day after day, year after year, so that over a long period of time, what becomes real to me? The shadow becomes real on the wall. I don't even realize that the shadow is being cast by the people that are walking or dancing or doing hand puppets or, you know, shadow puppets on behind me, I think the reality is the shadow. What the author of Hebrews is saying is the law, the priesthood, all of the Old Testament is the shadow. What is real? Jesus is real. Jesus is the reality. So, Plato goes on and says, what if these people got set free? What if they all of a sudden were unlocked from their chains? They could turn around and they could see what's real. His argument starts to become real philosophical and and even more progressive. Let's say they left the cave and got out in the sunlight and saw trees and clouds and sky and their eyes had to adjust the light. What if they had to go back into the cave and tell the people who are chained still that reality is not what they're seeing on the wall, but what is outside? What if they had the opportunity, because life was so hard outside, to go back in and get chained down and look at the wall again? Would they do it? 
It's a pretty extensive argument, and it, I think, reflects what's taking place here in the book of Hebrews. Too often, we are more enamored with the shadows than the real. We love to study the shadows. We love to look at some corner of the shadow and say, this must be what the real would look like if I study the shadow just a little bit more. This is, people, this is one of the great distractions of the Christian church. We become enamored with shadows when we have the reality of the person of Jesus Christ living in us, saving us, standing before us, wanting to be in relationship with us. Does it mean we don't look at the shadow? No, because sometimes it really is enlightening to us, but we don't become so enamored with the shadow we forget we have the real. Before I married Kathy, I had this picture of her um, that she had given me while we were dating. She's in a mauve dress, blue scarf, flashing that beautiful smile that she has. I had it on my dresser. I love that picture of Kathy. I mean, it's one of my favorite pictures of her as a young woman. But on June 18, 1988, Papa Leo walked her down the aisle, gave her to me as my wife, and for the last 26 years, we've lived together as husband and wife. What if I said, uh, I'm not really happy with the real. I think I'll just live with the picture. I really love that photo. You know, she's changed a lot in 26 years. Not that much, really. She looks really similar to <laughs> she does 20... But what if I was so enamored with that photo that I said, I don't want to live with the real any longer. I just want to live with the picture. I mean, really, the picture never has told me what to do. The picture has never argued with me. The picture has never caused me one moment of joy. But you know what? That's, what? that's how some of us want our relationship with Jesus to be. We would much rather just look at the shadow than have the real. Because the real is what? The real is about a relationship. It's a relationship with a God who loves us, a Lord who is trying to instill his power and his presence and his grace in our lives. The shadow is cast by the real. It is the reality that matters. The Levitical priesthood and even Melchizedek were simply shadows of the real. Jesus is the real. Don't go back to worshiping shadows. Whenever the symbols become more important to us than the substance, we're dancing with shadows. Whenever a style of worship is more important to us than the one we are worshiping, we're living with shadows. Whenever we fight with one another about buildings or symbols or become enamored with head coverings or what we're wearing or blowing shofars or celebrating feast days or thinking God is more in the rituals than we're worshiping 
shadows. Our entire faith is based on this. We have a relationship with a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Second point is this, cling to grace. Cling to grace. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. The whole, the whole Levitical priesthood is based on the law. All the law could do, I mean, the law is not bad. Don't, don't start suddenly hearing me saying, oh, the law is bad. No, the law is good. The problem is we're bad. And we can't live up to the law. The law, all it, Paul says in Romans 7, all, the law is like being married, being in a bad marriage. All the law does, it's, it's like a mirror that always shows us what we do is wrong. And it never lifts a finger to help us. It never helps us. All it continues to do is tell us what's wrong about us. The problem is, the more we try to do what is right, the more we struggle and actually do what's wrong. And the more we try not to do wrong, actually what we end up doing is wrong. I mean, either way, we're gone. We're sunk. I know what to do. I can't do it. I know what what to do, and I end up doing it anyway. That's what the law does to me. It just continues to point out my failures. The law made nothing perfect. You should put that somewhere in your house. The law made nothing perfect. Now, some of us may be saying, listen, let me just say this first. What you don't need is more rules and regulations. What you need is a Savior. Who will deliver me from this law of sin? Who's going to deliver me from this dilemma, Paul says in Romans 7? Thanks be to God who gives me the victory. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. The way we draw near to God is through grace. We need a Savior. He happened to have sent one. Jesus, the Son of God, perfect, sinless, blameless. And by grace, it's all an act of grace. What do I do to receive this Savior? I don't I just receive. He comes in and transforms me. I don't have to get cleaned up before I come to the Savior. I don't have to get better before I come to the Savior. I just come to Him, and He transforms me. I'm changed. It's an act of grace that I come to the Savior. Here's where it gets tricky. How many of you have been saved more than 10 years? More than 10 years. I would contend this. You are battling with legalism. You don't know it. Some of you would deny it, but we all battle with legalism. At some point, we want to go back to the first marriage. At some point, Paul says this, God has freed you from a bad marriage. He's not, by the way, he's not defending divorce. He's using it as a picture, an illustration. He's saying, God freed you from a bad marriage. Now you're married to Jesus through the power of the Spirit. You're in relationship with Him. Quit leaving this great marriage of grace to go back here or try to make the first 
the second husband happy by living like you're still with the first one. I don't know if you got that picture, but it's really important. Look, every church has its way of doing things. It has its written and unwritten codes about how we're supposed to live life. I'm standing before you today in my normal preaching attire. This is kind of clothes I usually wear when I preach. If next week I came with a, uh, a suit and tie, a coat and tie, now let's say I did that for like two or three weeks, I promise you, promise you, there would be people saying, and I'm not condemning you, I'm just saying this is the way we are. There would be people saying, who does he think he is? What's he trying to prove dressing up like that? Is he trying to change me? Is he trying to tell me that my clothes are inadequate? Is he trying to force something? Here we go. We're going to change again. Something. I'm telling you, people would say something. Why? Because even at fullness, we have our written and unwritten codes, don't we? That then become how we measure one another. As if the Bible wasn't hard enough. We're going to help God out. We're going to write some unwritten, we're going to make some other things that maybe be hinted at here or there. We're going to keep on taking, because I don't want to get close to, I'm afraid to even mention anything, because people get all riled up about certain things. I mean, the Bible makes it clear, don't do this. Well, in order not to do that, I'm going to back up like 20 steps to not do this because I don't want to get close to that. I, listen, if you're an addict, don't ever have another drink of alcohol, right? I mean, that, doesn't that make sense? Because you don't want to be drunk. You don't want to give your life to it. You don't want to be addicted to it. There are a lot of reasons to give up alcohol, but trying to say, the Bible says, I can never have a drink, you're really stretching it at some point. I'm not at, there are tons of reasons not to drink. Tons. But let's be honest about why they are rather than giving them to God on a certain... I mean, there, there are a bunch of these out there that we try to help God out with, and we are, all, we are all just miniature Pharisees trying to live according to the law because we think, i got to live it in order to make God happy. Because if he's not happy with me, he's going to be mad at me, and I don't want to get God mad at me because he's going to get me if he does. We lose the whole picture of grace. Because here's the truth. When you became a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, he no longer saw you through the eyes of the law. He sees you through the eyes of grace. Cling to grace. Understand grace. Now, here's the problem. I know. I know. This is, Paul even addresses it. Okay. If grace abounds more than sin, so, so, so should, should I sin more because then I'll get more grace? What a stupid question. That's what Paul says. <laughs> Heaven forbid is the phrase he uses. No, he's just saying grace is greater than your sin. Live in grace. Live in grace. All right, third point, and the final one. I mean that. Celebrate that Christ is able to save forever. You may have gotten a little 
You know, I know verses 1 through 24 get a little bogged down. Hopefully I unwove them a little bit for you so that when you read it and study it, you can, you can delve into the depths of it a little better. But in verse 25, he really, he says this, Therefore, remember, therefore is placed. You, you ask, what is it therefore? So everything that precedes about Melchizedek and the priesthood and the law and the shadows, therefore, he... Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He's able to save forever. Why is he able to save forever? Why is he able to save forever? Because he's there making intercession for us. He is at the right hand of God the Father making intercession for you right now. Therefore, we get to draw near to God. I, I, I know that I may not do a great job of convincing you of this, but I'm praying that the Spirit of God makes this come alive for you right now. Because there are some of us here today struggling with, does God really love me? I mean, I'm a terrible person. Just yesterday, I did fill in the blank. Surely God must not love me anymore because I did that. I'm not saying do what you did yesterday over and over again and live at peace with it. What I am saying is God's love for you is not based on whether you did great things or horrible things yesterday. His love for you is based on this. Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. You mess up and he's interceding for you. Meaning, he's standing between you and God, and when God sees you, he doesn't see what you did yesterday. He sees you through the eyes of grace and Jesus. The implications here are huge. You you have not just been saved. You are being saved, and you will be saved. Salvation is eternal because Jesus Christ, who is eternal, is a high priest forever at the right hand of God the Father. I mean, this is is great news. This is more than good news. It's great news. you got salvation still coming. The best part of your life is not in the past. you got great things ahead. Because Jesus is still at the right hand making intercession for you. Who is it that condemns? Who is he that condemns? It's not Jesus. It's the enemy. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He's contrasting the condemnation of the enemy with the fact that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us. By the way, this is not just an intercession. I know when you think of intercession, you think of prayer. He's praying for me. He's praying, you know, that I'll be healthy or I'm praying for this. Listen, by interceding, he's standing between you and God. All that God sees of you, he sees through the eyes of grace and Christ. Forever. This should cause us to live a life of freedom, a life of joy, a life where we can face tomorrow with courage, Am I going to stumble and fall today, tomorrow, the next? Yes, I am. 
not saying that in a happy, like, yeah, I'm going to sin tomorrow. But I am. So what happens? Christ is at the right hand of God the Father making intercession for me forever. So should I be afraid of what tomorrow holds? Should I be living a life of downcast, oh, poor, pitiful me, just horrible, you know? No, I should be living a life of joy. I've got God loving me through Jesus Christ with Jesus at the right hand of God the Father. Let me give you one illustration, and then we'll kind of wrap things up. Jesus, when he was still on the earth, he says to Simon Peter, Peter, i got bad news for you. You're going to betray me three times. Peter said, oh, no chance that's going to happen. No, no. Here's what he says to Peter. Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you. Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. People, this is a great passage. Simon, you're going to screw up. But your faith isn't going to fail. And then what he says, this is the best part. He doesn't say, if you turn back. He says, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. You see, here's the great thing about having Jesus pray for you. He bats a thousand and he does it every stinking time. He doesn't miss. He doesn't strike out. He doesn't whiff. Every time you have an intercessor standing at the right hand of God the Father saying, when they turn back, strengthen, strengthen. When they turn back. The key to me in all of this is, do you know this Jesus? And does he know you? When I was a little boy... My favorite football player was Bart Starr. Played quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. Played quarterback for Alabama. Wore number 15, won the first two Super Bowls. Um, I was young. First time, you know, when you watch football, you have these favorite players, especially when you're young and you're... I liked Bart Starr for many reasons, but the most shallow reason was because he had the same first name as me. I mean, why not? There weren't a lot of Barts. Bart Simpson wasn't around yet. There weren't a lot of Barts roaming the streets at those days. I could have told, I, I could have told you a lot of things about Bart Starr. I could tell you who he played for, what his numbers were. I could tell you certain statistics. I could tell you his wife's name was Cherry. They lived in Alabama. I, could, I mean, I could tell you a lot of things about him. I even had a book by Bart Starr. I met him one time, shook his hand. He said to Bart, I still have the book, to Bart, best wishes, Bart Starr. But to say I know Bart Starr would be a joke. I mean, I don't know Bart Starr. He doesn't know me. He could run over me with his car and he wouldn't know who I was. I mean, really, we live in the same city. I, I don't know him. Here's my fear. Some of us, I think, think we know Jesus like I know Bart Starr. Hello? We know stories. We know accounts. We know stuff. 
We may have even been to some games where we watched Jesus really perform, so to speak. That doesn't mean you know Jesus. My question for us today is, do we really, really, really know him? People, we've got to come out of the shadows of just looking at the wall and thinking this is what it's all about. We've got to cling to the grace that is ours through Jesus Christ, and we've got to rejoice in the fact that we have a Savior who intercedes for us now and forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day, this time, this moment. I pray that, Spirit of God, you would make this passage about Melchizedek and all that the author of Hebrews has been saying in chapter 7 come alive for us to the point that we can say, I I want it. If I don't know this Jesus, I want to know him. I want to know him as the one who forgives my sins, as the one who leads my life. And if we do know Christ as Savior and Lord, I pray that we would quit trying so hard and instead rejoice, receive, and walk out in faith the path that you've given for us. Lord, I thank you that as we grow, we outgrow kitty bikes and we get to move on. Lord, I pray that we would move on in grace and in life. Lord, I pray for people who are here today who need healing. Touch them, O Lord, and heal them. I pray for those who need direction. Jesus, guide. I pray for those who need freeing from burdens. Lord, we acknowledge today that just changing our behavior is not really what's going to help us. That we need true freedom. Trying harder won't get us there. We need a Savior. We need one who can free us. And so, Lord, I pray today for freedom to rule and reign in this place. Blessed be your name, O Lord. Move Holy Spirit among us. For those who need to know Christ, Spirit of God, draw them to the name of Jesus. Stand up with me if you would. I'm going to ask our ministry teams to come down to the front. If you'd move quickly and come and spread out across the front. If you're here today, you need prayer for health or healing or direction, freedom. Maybe you would like to say, you know what? I want to really, really, really know this Jesus that we've talked about. I really want to know him in a real way. Come and allow one of these teams to pray for us. Kevin is going to lead us in worship. If you don't need prayer, just pray and worship and seek after God and let the truth of this day permeate your heart and your life. If you need prayer, just move. Otherwise, let's worship the Lord.